talking about it. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. O&P? Go. AFC? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. It was the 25th of October, 1965, and Houston had a problem. And by that I mean Gene Kranz and the flight control team in the Mission Control Center of the Manned Space Flight Center in Houston had a problem. It was not a problem to which they were accustomed. Gemini 6 had failed. That's right, officially, the Gemini 6 mission had started and ended in failure. True, the Gemini spacecraft itself had not actually gotten off the launch pad, but the mission had actually started when the Agena spacecraft had lifted off. This launch was supposed to precede the launch of the Gemini Titan launch vehicle with the Gemini 6 capsule on top and with Wally Schirra and Tom Stafford aboard. And Agena had launched right on time, but Agena had not actually gotten to orbit. When the Agena spacecraft had separated from its Atlas booster, and the flight controllers had given it the command to start its own engine so that it could insert itself into orbit, it had instead suddenly gone offline, and it would later be learned it had disintegrated. So, the Gemini 6 mission had to be ended before it had really begun, but it would go into the books at NASA as a failed mission, not as a launch scrub. Now, it's absolutely true, though maybe not widely recognized, that the next time that Shira and Stafford would go to the pad and board the very same spacecraft, they would actually be the crew of Gemini 6A, which was really a little nomenclature sleight of hand to distract everyone from the fact that Gemini 6 had flown and had failed. Now, part of the reason that it's not remembered that way by history is because of the very successful flight of Gemini 6A, which was as much, actually much more, of a history-making event than Gemini 6 was or even would have been if it had succeeded. But truly, the reason I'm kind of harping on this point is that NASA really has not had very many failed missions. Particularly failed missions in the manned space program have been exceedingly rare. There have been lots of failed launch attempts. There have been missions that have been canceled even uh, late in their run-up to launch. There have been missions that failed to meet some of their main flight objectives. But full, all-up, all-out mission failures? There have been precious few. Those that have happened have certainly captured the imagination of the public and headlines in the media, such as the two space shuttle disasters, Challenger on launch and Columbia on re-entry. The Apollo 13 mission also comes to mind. Although it's debatable, and still debated, whether or not it was a failure, given that the one main objective of getting the crew home safely was, in fact, achieved in spectacular and dramatic fashion. But that sometimes obscures the fact that the mission of getting the crew to the surface of the moon didn't happen, which means that Apollo 13 is often seen as a failed mission. Now, the Apollo 1 fatal fire that killed the original Apollo 1 crew happened during pre-launch testing and so was not actually a failed mission per se, although it was a terrible tragedy. Other than that, I'm not sure that there are any other missions that have been seen as failed missions. I could be wrong, 
I have not done an exhaustive search, but even if I've missed some lesser-known problematic missions, I don't think that it changes my fundamental point. For NASA, mission failure is actually pretty uncommon. Even by 1965, NASA was becoming very unused to failing completely in its mission. Um, it's important to understand this because early in the days of the Mercury program, uh, mission failure was actually pretty common. At one point in 1961, NASA still had a mission success rate of less than 50%. Really. In the early days of NASA, flight controllers had literally reported to their consoles realizing that there was a better-than-even chance that the mission they had prepared for would end in failure. I think it's probably hard to overestimate how profoundly that experience had shaped the worldview and the work ethic of those early flight controllers, which included many of the senior staff in NASA operations at the time of Gemini 6, including all of the flight directors, many of the lead flight controllers, and most of the management of the mission operations directorate. For those flight controllers and managers, it had become the case, in the famous phrase associated with Apollo 13, that failure was not an option. An immense amount of time, analysis, thought, effort, and process and procedure development had gone into making sure that when a NASA mission got to the launch pad, it was going to get to orbit and get home safely. All of those procedures, which, as we have seen, included an almost mind-boggling amount of testing and verification and retesting and re-verification, had significantly extended the time that it took for NASA to get ready to launch. I mean, the Gemini program, after all, had taken almost two years longer to get to orbit than was originally planned. But by the end of 1965, with a string of successful missions behind it, um, the complaints about how long it had taken were starting to dissipate. In addition to ensuring that the hardware was ready for the mission, NASA had also worked hard to develop processes, procedures, and a mission control culture that was adept at dealing with those contingencies that did arise during, and, um, during planning and during the mission itself. I mean, over the course of 1965, this work had proven its worth as the team on the ground and the crew on orbit had continually pulled, pulled small miracles out of their collective hat to salvage a variety of on-orbit situations that ranged from small anomalies to, you know, potential mission-ending failures. But ever since the first Mercury mission, they had always gotten all the way through every mission they had launched until now. Again, I know I'm kind of harping on this failure thing, but I realized in reading about this incident, and maybe more importantly, what immediately followed this incident, that I don't think enough attention is actually paid to this moment in time in NASA's history, uh, maybe in the history of human spaceflight in general. At the moment when Paul Haney was declaring, no joy, no joy, there was actually a lot of roads that the Gemini program and NASA could have gone down. Uh, I maintain that an awful lot of those roads might not have led to the surface to the, of the moon, either by the end of the decade or, frankly, at all. At that moment, it would have been easy for the Gemini program to circle the wagons and focus on the failure that had just occurred. In the light of how many, if not most, organizations deal with this kind of failure, it would not have been a surprise if NASA effectively put the brakes on, if they had begun to search not only for the root cause of the failure, but also for those who were responsible for it. 
and given the way the Agena program had been managed and the way it had performed to date, there were there would have been an ample fodder for a good old session of private and then public blamestorming. There would have been ample opportunity for those who were faint of heart about NASA's mission of going to the moon to use this failure a reason to shy away from the commitment to Kennedy's vision. It would have been easy for NASA to blame the Air Force and claim that it was not really committed to the vision of the civil space program. It would have been easy for the Air Force to blame NASA and claim that it had never followed the advice of the true procurement experts in how to buy and build space hardware. After all, the Agena had flown more than a hundred times successfully on programs run by the Air Force. It was only a problem when NASA was running the show. Was NASA really capable of getting to the moon? It would have been easy for Lockheed to immediately begin preparing their explanations about how the issue stemmed from the way the program had been managed, how funding had arrived late and in fits and starts, which it had, by the way, or how the requirements kept changing late in the development cycles, which they did. NASA management could have blamed the Gemini Program Office. The Gemini Program Office could have blamed NASA management for imposing such a complicated program management structure. They could have blamed the previous Gemini Program managers who had agreed to it. I'm sure someone could have found a way to blame the Marshall Space Flight Center for putting themselves in the middle of a program and then deciding they had bigger fish to fry developing the Saturn rocket. How do I know all of this? Because I have worked and watched uh, enough large government programs to have seen this pattern with distressing frequency. Many of you out there in listener land probably have as well. Turning inward, explaining the failure, containing the fallout, finding who, out who was responsible, that's the way a lot of programs respond. It happens all the time. But it didn't happen there and then. That's why Gemini 6 is so important to me. Not because of the failure, but because of the reaction it generated and what that reaction said about not only the Gemini project, but about NASA in general. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that NASA in 1965 was some kind of paragon of virtue, but the seeds of the ultimate success of the Apollo program were taking root right there. So, what exactly did NASA do? Well, the Agena program guys immediately started a failure review process. It's what you do after this kind of incident. At first, at first informally and then very quickly as part of a formal process, they began collecting their data, not only the telemetry data from the flight, but also the data from the launch prep campaign, data from the actual countdown, data from all of the testing that had been done getting Agena ready for launch status. They set up a failure investigation board, and the work of not only figuring out what went wrong, but also being able to prove it began. And not it wasn't particularly unusual. Maybe there was a bit more urgency than there would have been in the normal case. Now, the wider Gemini program, on the other hand, more or less left the Agena program to their investigating and started thinking about what next. In Gemini's case, that consisted of starting to think about the next Gemini mission, which was, of course, Gemini 7. In effect, once Gemini 6 was done, for better or worse, the focus turned to the next mission, and this was largely because of one of the overriding features, well, actually, point of obsession, really, of the Gemini program, which was the pace of the launch schedule. The Gemini uh, really was a program in a hurry. It had taken a long time to get to the launch pad for Gemini, and all the while, the decade was not getting any longer. 
The need for Gemini to contribute to the body of knowledge required to make Apollo successful was actually urgent. So Gemini had responded to all of the delays in flight hardware by developing an obsession with how fast flights could be launched in succession once they started flying. It was a source of pride to everyone at the Cape, NASA, and all of the NASA contractors that they had gotten the time it took to recycle the launch pad, erect a new booster, made a new spacecraft to it, complete all the requisite tests, and then complete the countdown for the next launch, down to the minimum number of days possible, and that number was a bit less than 60, or about two months. It was important because it meant that after Gemini 6, on October the 25th, there was still time to get Gemini 7 launched before the end of 1965, which actually was an important milestone, at least inside Gemini and NASA management. Gemini 7 was the actual successor flight to Gemini 5. Um, it was the last of the planned endurance missions. This time, Jim Lovell and Frank Borman would really extend the long-duration spaceflight record to two full weeks. It actually had originally been planned to follow Gemini 5, but the problems with Agena had, in a curious way, actually caused the Gemini program office to slip the rendezvous mission in between the 8-day and the 14-day endurance missions. The thinking had been that if the first Agena target mission had a major problem, it, it would be better to do it early and get an early insight into any problems, because this would be less likely to disturb the program's plan to be done with flying by the end of 1966. And that was definitely a firm goal. In order for Apollo to reach its ultimate goal, by the end of 1969, Gemini needed to be done and out of the way by the end of 1966. So, the first rendezvous mission had become Gemini 6, it had been squeezed into 1965's flight schedule, and space was left early in 1966 to slip in a redo of the Gemini 6 mission if it was needed. So, at the moment the, the Agena target vehicle underwent its uh, rapid unplanned disassociation event, the Gemini schedules kinda, schedulers kind of looked pretty smart. Uh, but what to do about rescheduling Gemini 6 and what to do about Agena were actually lower priority, the Gemini team, then thinking about starting the Gemini 7 flow. Well, for most of them, anyway. Two of those at the Cape who were not focused on Gemini 7 were Walter Burke and John Yardley. Uh, Burke was the McDonnell spacecraft chief at the Cape, and Yardley was his deputy. Two others who were very interested in the Gemini 7 flow, but who were now also increasingly interested in what Burke and Yardley were discussing, were Jim Lovell and Frank Borman, the astronauts assigned to Gemini 7. All four men were standing in the gal gallery at the uh, Launch Control Center, amongst the crowd that was slowly drifting in as the increasingly futile Gemini 6 countdown wound down to its inevitable conclusion. Standing there feeling the frustration that must have been palpable, and much of it obviously directed at the Agena program, Burke had turned to Yardley and wondered why they just couldn't use another Gemini spacecraft as the target for the rendezvous and not have to use the Agena at all. The short answer, that they both knew, inherently, was that there was only one Gemini launch pad. This meant that unlike Agena, which could be prepared for launch at the same time as the Gemini capsule on a separate pad and then launched at basically the same time, the two Gemini capsules would have to be launched sequentially from the same pad, and at that point, the minimum time between launches was two months. Since the longest Gemini mission, which in fact was Lovell and Borman's, was scheduled for two weeks, that wasn't going to work. But then Yardley pointed out 
that there had actually been a study done to figure out how to do two rapid-fire launches. This had been done back in the summer when NASA was actually looking at opening a second Gemini launch pad. Uh, in the end, NASA decided that a second launch pad was a luxury couldn't really afford, but that conclusion had been reached at least partly uh, based on the work of the rapid-fire study. Uh, this was because engineers at NASA, McDonnell, and at the Air Force, had actually come up with a way of dramatically shortening the launch turnaround if they needed to. In fact, they thought they could get it down to about a week. Now, when the conversation reached that point, Lovell and Borman started to get really interested. It turned out that the way to get the turnaround down to a week was actually to prepare the vehicle that was going to launch second first. To stack that booster and mate it with the spacecraft, do all the pre-launch checks, and then to take it off the launch pad and put it in storage and then go through the normal process of prepping the booster and the spacecraft that was going to launch first, launch it, and then do a rapid cleanup and refit of the launch pad itself, bring the other booster and spacecraft out from storage, mate them again on the launch pad, and pick up the launch countdown. It had been treated as a bit of a harebrained scheme at the time, especially since it required the first booster to be lifted off the pad using a Skycrane helicopter, uh, because it would have to be kept vertical once it had been prepared. It would then have to be returned to the pad the same way. Uh, the engineers involved had been adamant, though, that they could pull it off, and management had been less than enthusiastic about the plan, but had allowed the engineers to work out the details. The study had then been carefully filed in the holy cow, I hope we never have to make that work bin. But now... It rapidly dawned on all four men at the back of the launch control center that they had, in fact, um, just completed the first half of that process. Because the scenario was rapidly evolving in their minds, and in the mind of Raymond Hill, another senior McDonnell manager at the Cape, who'd been dragged into this impromptu engineering uh, session. In that scenario, Gemini 7 would launch and act as the target vehicle for Gemini 6. In that scenario, they would need to prepare Gemini 6 for launch before starting the launch flow of Gemini 7. Well, they'd just done that. It was already sitting out there on the pad. All they needed to do was transfer it to a storage site and then start the Gemini 7 flow as they normally would. As far as the three McDonnell engineers and the two astronauts could tell, there were no other showstoppers. The Gemini 7 crew were going to be on orbit for 14 days. They could go into rendezvous target mode any time in that time. Because, as the previous two long-durations missions had proved, their calendar wasn't exactly likely to be overly full with other tasks for two weeks. The Gemini 6 crew was fully trained to do the rendezvous. In a best-case scenario, it would take only one day. All that would be required was to get Gemini 7 into approximately the same orbit as, as had been planned for Regina, and the Gemini 6 mission could unfold pretty much as it had been planned. The only difference would occur at the very end of the rendezvous sequence, which would have to end at the station-keeping stage because there was no way to dock the two spacecraft. Um, it then occurred to them that the only possible issue was that they uh, had to keep anyone from starting the process of pulling the Gemini 6 stack down at the pad. The whole scheme rested on leaving the booster in the spacecraft in as close to flight configuration as possible to decrease the amount of time it was going to take to get it back ready to launch after Gemini 7 took off. They needed to make sure that no one started any of that process before their alternative had been properly considered by management. So Yardley and Burke 
began circulating amongst the various management team members still present in the launch control center. They pitched their idea to just about everyone, from the booster managers to the launch site management and even right up to Gemini Program Office head Chris Matthews. They didn't find a very receptive audience. But nobody actually said no, either. Undaunted, they continued to refine the idea. They caught what turned out to be a small break when it was discovered that another team was asking for the Gemini 6 stack to stay on the launch pad, albeit for another possibly competing reason. It turned out that another group at the Cape wanted to keep the Gemini 6 booster on the pad to use it as the launch vehicle for Gemini 7, because that would shave a week or so off the turnaround time and allow them to get Gemini 7 off early. Um, The hitch was that the Gemini 7 spacecraft, having been configured for a long-duration flight, was a lot heavier than the Gemini 6 capsule, and it wasn't clear that the Gemini 6 booster, which had been configured for the lighter capsule, would be capable of launching the Gemini 7 capsule into its planned orbit. So, the mission operations group was basically asking for a pause in any processing flow actions. Well, they did the math on whether or not swapping boosters was a good idea. Now, that was bad news if, in fact, it was a viable plan, because it would directly conflict with the Burke and Yardley plan. But on the other hand, it gave them some breathing space, because nothing was going to happen to the Gemini 6 stack for at least another day or so. It wasn't much, but it was something. So, undaunted, uh, but also unsupported by anyone at the Cape other than the crew of Gemini 7, Burke and Yardley decided to go to Houston and straight to the man himself, Bob Gilruth head of the Manned Space Flight Center, and, by the way, a minor legend, um, which is borne out by the fact that almost no one at NASA ever referred to Gilruth in any other way as Dr. Gilruth. I mean, NASA had a reasonably informal culture, and most people went by their first names, but no one ever called Dr. Gilruth Bob. That Walter Burke, eh, an important manager and a major contractor, but hardly a senior executive, could get a meeting with Gilruth in less than 24 hours is actually a point to note. It may not have seemed strange in the NASA of 1965, but it would seem strange to almost anyone who works in a similar environment today. At any rate, Burke got his meeting with Gilruth. He explained his idea. He needed the Gemini 6 stack to stay on the launch pad as is until it could be moved to an appropriate storage facility. Then, stacking and preparation of Gemini 7 could start. Meanwhile, the mission ops guys would have to rewrite the Gemini 7 flight plan so that it could serve as the target vehicle for Gemini 6A, which would launch as soon as the pad could be cycled after the Gemini 7 launch, and the old Gemini 6 stack could be transferred back to the pad. Burke figured that the turnaround time would be less than a week. Now, at first, Gilruth was no more receptive than anyone else had been saying basically that just wasn't how things worked. But Burke was persistent, and he uttered two magic words. He said, why not? And with that, the worm turned. Gilruth tried to come up with an objection that would stick, but Burke and Yardley had prepared well. Nothing that Gilruth came up with made it impossible. Tough, yeah. Risky, yes, too. But not in an uncontrolled way. Next, Gilruth called in his deputy, George Lowe, and asked him what he thought. Now, having covered the issues of how the process would work at the Cape, Lowe wasn't able to find any flaws in that logic. But his concern was how the tracking and communications network was going to handle two Gemini spacecraft at the same time. 
because the parallel communications network that had been set up to support Agena wasn't interchangeable with the one that Gemini used. So this concern generated a call to Chris Kraft, head of mission operations. In the meantime, the Gemini project office head, Chris Matthews, had arrived in Bob Gilruth's office. Now, despite his rejection of, his, of the idea the day before, he now began to consider the suggestion more carefully. It was now mid-morning, just about exactly 24 hours after the failure of the Gemini 6 mission. Chris Kraft arrived. When the idea was presented to him, his reaction was now the standard, are you out of your minds? It can't be done. But again, when he was challenged to explain, explain why it couldn't be done, he could come up with some questions that needed answering but no firm roadblocks that were insurmountable. So he called his deputy in. Sigurd Schoberg was no more able to puncture the now rapidly expanding balloon of possibility than Kraft had been. They called a meeting of the flight operations team for 1.30 that afternoon in Houston. Now, Gilworth then reached out to Chief Astronaut Deke Slayton, who checked with the Gemini 6 crew, who were, unsurprisingly, enthusiastic about the idea and the ball was firmly rolling downhill. When the flight control team met, their reaction was best summed up by Chris Kraft, who said, quote, They found it a hell of a great challenge, and to a man, they wanted to press on as soon as possible. Unquote. And this, I think, is the moment that crystallizes the NASA culture that got humanity to the moon and back safely. I mean, think about it. Barely 24 hours after a significant failure, the first failed flight in four years, how did the whole NASA organization respond? Did they stop and say, oh no, how bad is this going to be? They did not. Did they immediately say, okay, who screwed up? No, they did not. Did they start worrying about how they were going to explain the failure? Well, Maybe a little, but that was probably restricted to the highest levels of NASA management that had regular interactions with the administration and with Congress. Below that level, everyone seems to have been firmly focused on, okay, what do we do from here? That's a big pile of lemons on the table. How are we going to make some lemonade out of that? And when suggestions started appearing, the response was to say, okay, well, that sounds crazy, but why won't it work? which is a very different question than what if it doesn't work, which is the question that a lot, and I mean a lot, of organizations would have and do ask in that same kind of crisis. In that situation, it is all too easy to start going into siege mentality in the face of adversity. You know, whatever you do, don't make it worse. All actions are evaluated first based on the effect they will have if they don't work, which is different than looking how likely they are not to work. It means that you've fallen into the trap of worrying about whether your decisions will be judged by others to be correct, rather than on making the right decisions. It is the attitude that the way to deal with a failure is to avoid taking further risks, and it happens all the time. But it's not what NASA did. From pretty much bottom to top, NASA looked at the problem and said, okay, how do we keep moving forward? When Burke and Yardley convinced NASA managers that they were actually offering a serious proposal, it was evaluated, not on the basis of whether or not it was risky, but on the basis of its value as a possible solution. 
mean, everybody knew it was risky. But everyone also knew that getting to the moon and back was not going to be done without taking risks. As a team, as a culture, NASA was completely at home at looking at ideas that were inherently risky and asking themselves, is there a way to make this work? Rather than asking themselves, what happens if it goes wrong? They asked themselves, okay, what has to happen for this to go right? And as Robert Frost would say, that made all the difference. By mid-afternoon, the flight control team in Houston was working on a solution for controlling two spacecraft. They would do it by resurrecting the old Mercury network. While Gemini 6 was aloft, they would support Gemini 7 the old-fashioned way, communicating over low bandwidth with the spacecraft and between ground stations with teletype, while they used the more modern Gemini network to support Gemini 6. This would work because Gemini 6 was going to be the active half of the rendezvous pair, while Gemini 7 would be mostly passive. And again, it was a risk, but it was one that NASA understood. Later that afternoon, the word came that the Gemini 6 booster was, in fact, not powerful enough to launch the Gemini 7 spacecraft. That cleared the last hurdle. The engineers at the Cape now turned their full attention to how they would handle the rapid-fire launch concept. There were some details that needed to be worked out, but like everyone else, they could find no challenges that they didn't think they could overcome. Meanwhile, the phone lines between Houston and Washington had been humming. Bob Gilruth and George Lowe briefed senior NASA management about the plan, and they all basically came back with the same question. Are you sure? So Lowe and Gilruth asked for 24 hours to make sure that their teams had found no showstoppers. It was now the 27th of October, barely 48 hours after Agena had disintegrated. Polled at the end of the day, no one on the team could come up with a solid reason why the plan would not work. And so, on the 28th of October, President Johnson stepped up to the mic at his ranch in Texas. If reporters were waiting for him to issue a somber response to NASA's failed mission and explanations of how the problem would be investigated, but NASA would move forward, etc., etc., they were disappointed. Instead, Johnson announced that in less than three months, NASA would launch the Gemini 7 mission, which would then be joined on orbit by the Gemini 6A mission a week later. Together, the two spacecraft would accomplish the never-before-performed feat of rendezvousing and flying in formation on orbit. Now, although the announcement technically targeted early January for the double flight, the whole Gemini program was actually aiming for early December. And so, one of the most famous, at least to Space Geeks, episodes in the Gemini program was put in motion, dubbed, um, I think mostly later, as far as I can tell, as the spirit of 76, it would lead NASA to eclipse yet another of the records held by the Soviets, and would cement in the minds of NASA engineers and the wider public that NASA was indeed headed for a rendezvous, pun intended, with destiny and with the moon. But we'll have to pick up that story of how all that played out on orbit in the next episode, because that's really all the time we have for now. Now, just a quick note, we're going to take a little holiday break here at Terranauts World Headquarters. We'll be back on the 12th of January with the story of Gemini 6A and Gemini 7. And with that in mind, I would like to take this opportunity to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and a safe and prosperous New Year. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's get-
keep the chatter down. <laughs>